You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast, brought to you by our friends at Killcliffe. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who is a Afghanistan and Iraq vet, he's also a country music artist and an author. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. But just a few reminders. We want to thank you guys for joining us in this new video platform that we have here that you're getting either on HazardGround.com or on our YouTube channel, as well as Killcliffe.com, the Killcliffe app, and anywhere else you can can consume Kill Cliff videos. So thank you guys for joining us on this new venture. And as always, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground community. All right, this week's guest is a 13-year veteran of the U.S. Army, eight on active duty, five currently serving still now in the National Guard, where he holds the rank of Staff Sergeant. He authored a book called Time Cap, and he is currently a country music artist who has released his second EP, and he's also a brand ambassador for a company called Guitars for Veterans, and he is Nick Rucker joining us this week on the Hazard Ground. Nick, welcome, man. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. All right, so a book and a country music artist. Needless to say, you're busy, and so hence why you are now in the National <laughs> Guard. Um, but, you know, uh, it, it's great to see whenever veterans can transition from the active force into a whole different world. And, and obviously the music stuff is important, as now you're working with PTSD and veterans who are struggling with mental health. So we'll get to that coming up in a moment. But for now, start back at the beginning and tell me how and why you got in the Army. Um, my dad, honestly, uh, he, he served in desert storm and would, I just remember all of these nights of, he would, my parents were separated. He would come down from Iowa and pick me up and it was like a four hour drive. And he would share all these stories of, uh, the highway of hell and all these crazy things, um, during desert storm. And I, I, um, think that most of the time I was kind of like afraid to ask more, um, but I was always interested. It kind of lit that spark for me. Um, and so as time kind of went on, uh, I told him and thinking like 2007, 2008, I was thinking about joining. And I talk about it in the book where he says, no kid of mine is ever going to join the army. I served, did enough time for all of us. Um, but I kind of took that with a grain of salt or shot a penicillin, whichever one it was, and <laughs> said, I'm moving on. I'm going to go ahead and do whatever I want to do. Um, and so <clears throat> I joined 2008, and I went to basic training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And honestly, right out of the gate, I just kind of had, I had never been through a culture shock like, like, like I had with basic training and I didn't really know what to expect. And I didn't grow up in a house where there's a bunch of yelling and screaming and everything else. Um, so for me, I was like, Oh boy. Yeah. What have I got myself into? Yeah. But uh, see, if your dad was in the military, he didn't warn you anything about basic training and what it was going to be like. No, I don't want to set you up for failure. Isn't it? Uh, oh yeah. He, he's just like, I think whenever I left, he was already kind of upset with me. So he was like, Oh, you'll learn. Like, oh, you'll figure it out on your own. Now, do, do you think he was more upset with you because you were signing up at a time where there are two wars going on and he knew that's where you were going or he thought maybe there was something in life else that, you, you know, you were meant to do? You know, I don't know. I And I'd, I'd probably be better off asking him nowadays, um, you know, 
what what his you know approach was with that. But uh, I just think that he, you know, I have no idea. I I really don't. But I mean, ask. <laughs> but you know, after all these years, it's maybe worth the answer. But yeah, you know, because one day maybe you telling that to your kids. It's true, and I've already told you know my uh, my girlfriend. I'm like, you know, once once our, our baby's old enough and he, he wants to join the army, I'm totally okay with that. So um, that's you know, it's definitely built. It's a character builder. That's what I. I look at it yeah. as, you know, it's funny. I, I've had that conversation um, with my wife and, and, and about our kids. And I, I don't know how I feel. I mean, the military has changed so much in the 20 years that I've been in. Right. And, and who knows what it's going to look like in, in 10 years, 15 years when they can decide to sign up on their own. So I don't know hundred percent know how I'd feel about it. I mean, on one hand, I think the way we fight wars in another 15 years is going to be so dramatically different than how we do it now versus how your dad did it in dead Storm, desert storm, let alone Vietnam and years back. And so, um, I, I don't know, I, I don't think I'd be against it, but I mean, Lord knows it's, it's a, it's a different life that you chose to lead when, when you put the uniform on. Yeah. And it's definitely something I just think personally, I'm glad I experienced that regardless of what the, you know, overall experience was and, and time frame because I think, you know, I guess from, the guys that whenever I joined that were older, you know, on their way out, they were telling me, Oh man, things used to be different back then. And then it just kind of keeps revolving door, you know? And so you're just kind of like, all right, well, I guess we'll just, uh, I'll just have my experience and I'll pass it on to the next guys. But you, you definitely make a good point. The guys that I'm training nowadays, I'm like, I don't know if you'd survive if we went overseas, you know, right. and just the mental side of it. <laughs> so I'm at that weird stage in my life, in my military career, where I always have to kind of throw that out, right, to everybody around me, like back when I, you know, was your rank or back when I got in. And then you realized how foolish you sound by dating yourself and how archaic it must be to all these young kids looking at you going, boy, that's an old fart. And I just like, I find myself doing that. And I'm like, I wish I never said that. I should just act cool and pretend I know what the hell is going on. Uh, anyway, but you said that you, it was a culture shock for you in basic training. So what was that one moment where for you, it was like, whoa, this was a bad decision. Um, as, as soon as I got on the bus, uh, <laughs> to go t- to basically go to the, it, it was Forrest Gump style and you yeah. get on high, I'm Forrest Gump. Yeah. So they, I mean, you go through the reception and you're there for, I was there for a week or whatever. And honestly, I was fat and I was shaped and, and I was just like looking at this as like, Hey, I, this is my last chance to get my life together. And so they, loaded us up on that bus and then took us out and we pulled up in front of the barracks. And I remember I'm still friends with them today, but drill Sergeant Unesco uh, just met me at the door and he's like, Oh, fucking rocker. You know, he's like, looks like uh, you and I are going to be friends for the next nine weeks. And I was just on his radar the whole time, just because I was the first person out of the bus and like, great. Um, That was the culture shock for me. And I was like, I think initially whenever you first get the basic training and you're like, Oh, great. Like, I don't want to be that guy that's uh, on somebody's radar for the next nine weeks or, <clears throat> and some change, but uh, here we are. So um, yeah, that was my culture shock initially. Then just as time went on, of course you get used to it right. uh, and it just becomes life. And I think 
The other time was the first time you throw on that IBA and you got that extra weight on. And if you've never been <clears throat> one that was like training uh, for certain stuff like that, I nearly passed out on the bayonet range. And I was like, what the, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> so wait, was there, was there a moment where you didn't think you were going to make it? No, I always knew I was going to make it. Yeah. Okay. Um, I just think there was a moment where um, I was questioning what MOS that I went into. Um, it was like more like I wish I would have chose something that was a little bit more demanding um, because I went into something that was more like mentally, I guess, demanding than than physically demanding. But because uh, after you go through basic training, of course, then you're in really good shape and you're like, I want to stay in really good shape then for us that are in field maintenance or whatever that may be, it's, you go to AIT and you you definitely get out of shape real quick. So, so you were, you were a maintenance guy, small arms. Yeah. Small arms repair. I initially came in as a fire control systems repair. So a tank electrician. Um, and then as time has progressed, I've transitioned over to 91 Fox. So small arms guy, but, um, Yep, that's I've Did always you go to been. Go Fort Lee or Aberdeen for your AIT. Aberdeen, yep. Aberdeen yeah, that's that's why now. you got fat because you were in Aberdeen. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, yeah. it, like that post is fantastic. It's one of the best kept secrets uh, in the army, and, and it's you know it's only a, a tradoc post. Now you have some EOD units over at uh, Edgewood area, but uh, it's where my OBC was back in the day. Now I'm really dating myself, but yeah, I spent uh, I spent six months at Aberdeen and. Uh, coincidentally, I graduated from Loyola College in Baltimore. So right after I got commissioned, I went right to Aberdeen for another six months. So it was like an extra six months of college. Uh, yeah, that's that was the worst. I was there for six months, too. And there's like thousands of us that were going through school there. And they just it was hard for them. To, I know that there was like probably six NCOs that were in charge of each six platoons of guys that we had. And we're talking hundreds of guys in a platoon and it was just like they couldn't keep tabs on all of us it was just ridiculous so 61st yeah. ordinance battalion if i remember correctly was that Six, the unit either 63rd 16th yeah 16th yeah yeah ordinance battalion yep my brain still works all right so <laughs> after you finish after you finish ait you're moving on to where fort riley kansas um <laughs> so all all eight years of active duty were at Fort Riley, Kansas. Oh. <laughs> See, that was like, that was, that was one of the reasons why, you know, initially I got off active duty was like, you know, they sent me to Fort Hood, Texas. And, and yeah. as a New York kid, right, moving to Texas, you want to talk about culture shocks, that was it. And I'm not sure I could have bared the thought of them sending me to Fort Riley, Kansas or Fort Polk, Louisiana uh, yeah. after Fort Hood. And I'm like, man, I just want to live someplace that's normal. <laughs> and then you realize that the army does not push any of their bases anywhere that's normal other than Fort Carson and Fort Lewis. Yep. So, uh, and, and those both have downsides to them. Fort Lewis, it rains 10 months out of the year and uh, Fort Carson, you're buried in seven feet of snow four months yep. a year. So, uh, you know, the army does a really good job at, at figuring out where not to, where, where, where cool people don't want to hang out. Although yeah. you give a nod to Fort Carson because the skiing there I hear is great. Never been, but I hear it's fantastic. I've, I've been definitely been around that base. It's, it's nice. And, yeah. uh, the, uh, Fort Riley though. Yeah. So coming from Aberdeen to Fort Riley, actually Fort Riley was like two hours from where I grew up. And so that was the, the benefit was I was able to go home on weekends. It was still within the 250 mile radius and, and 
hey, I got to go home and see my family whenever I wanted, which really didn't matter because like a month after I got to Fort Riley, um, I remember the day that I got there, went through and processing, went to my unit. My unit was actually in the field um, doing a field problem for the deployment. And I got um, called into the Sergeant Major's office, the Battalion Sergeant Major, and Sergeant Major Griffin. Um, I'll never forget this moment, but he brought me in and he's like, how you doing? And I was like, oh, good. Uh, good Sergeant Major. And he's like, well, hopefully you're ready to go to Iraq because that's where we're going in 30 days. And I was like, well, goddamn. <laughs> in my head, I'm thinking, well, goddamn, here we go. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's the only Army experience I have are basic training and AIT. So um, it's, it, and of course, as you know as well, that's nothing compared to what you'll like experience in your unit or whatever you do. And uh, so from there, that was just like, I never, I think I spent one day in the motor pool or so um, preparing, just talking to meeting the guys. And so whenever we deployed, I, I really didn't know anybody in my unit at all, um, which was kind of a bummer uh, because I'm, I'm an E1 at the time. And of course, I'm getting the shit in of the stick on every single thing that's happening. Plus, you're still the FNG regardless. Yes. Yep. You know, I mean, the FNG always kind of gets it. Yep. Yeah. So we got, yeah, we got to Baghdad. Um, actually went, well, went through Kuwait, of course, Camp Buring, uh, went through our two weeks of training there. And that was kind of, at that point, I was just kind of made up my mind. I guess I, I felt like after that first deployment, you kind of make a decision in your head, Hey, I'm either going to grow up really fast or I'm going to, you know, fall behind and I'm going to wish I hadn't left. And so I basically kind of, I didn't know anybody, wasn't really friends with anybody, but maybe like two couple people and just decided, you know, I'm just kind of going to do what I know to do, which is lift weights, keep reading and uh, keep learning everything that I, I possibly can uh, to better myself. Now, and, what, did they, what did they tell you about the mission itself? And, and, and by the way, what did you tell your dad and your family about when you got notified for deployment? Uh, so the mission itself was to, we deployed on our own. So usually, I mean, I'm used to like the second deployment we deployed with the whole brigade. Um, we deployed just as ourselves as a, as a single maintenance company and went over and basically we supported the uh, third ID and uh, fell under a battalion from uh, Hunter Army Airfield in Georgia. Yeah. And so our mission basically was like, Hey, we're going to do maintenance. We're going to do um, some convoy security. And then other than that, we're just a uh, part of maintaining everything that was on that base on Camp Liberty. <clears throat> and so whenever we got there, it really didn't change much. And I, I know that whenever we first got there, they were talking about redirecting us to Afghanistan, um, that our, we could have been used better there. And there was a lot of talk whenever you, when you first got into country. And <clears throat> so then getting to actual Afghanistan or to Camp Buring and going through kind of the training, the pre-training and stuff like that, you started going through those classes, uh, the mandatory classes. They start talking about all the IEDs. Uh, and right 
at that time, um, RKGs, those uh, Russian grenades were a big yep. thing um, going through the tops and them kind of tossing him down and uh, going through the gunner's turret. And so that was uh, the big talk. And so me, you know, honestly, never, I don't have any friends that are in the unit that are telling me about previous deployments or anything like that. So I'm just expecting as soon as we get off this plane in Baghdad, we're going to get start getting shot at and I'm going to have to like run, <laughs> run for cover. Um, and I remember having that in the back of my mind as soon as we got off uh, the plane at uh, Baghdad International Airport, uh, that that was what, what the deal was going to be. Uh, but obviously it wasn't. Um, so, um, yeah, so we got there and it was still super confusing as to what, what we were actually doing. Uh, a lot of times, like, I, I kind of compare it to the second deployment to Afghanistan, which was more organized, well-organized. We knew exactly what we were going there for, who were, we were supporting, um, and everything we were doing as a small arms shop, uh, we're going to who we were going to support. Um, but this one was just like, we got there. Nobody really knew what was going on still. Um, we had a massive formation. Um, the first day we got to Baghdad, which everybody was like, why, why are we in this huge 115 people formation right now? You know, this close to the city. Uh, but obviously they knew something that we didn't at the time. But coming to find out a few days later, whenever I first came came in contact with my first mortar attack um that's when i was like oh shit we probably shouldn't have been in a, a formation um in the you know that close to the city um so that's it's basically you know leading up to that and getting to um iraq that's what that kind of how that transcribes us uh, go ahead what was what was the tempo like every day i mean as a maintenance guy you know i i kind of get the notion of the mission um and I know you said a little bit of convoy security. So uh, did you get a chance to get outside the wire often? Or is it just more of the, you know, get up, eat breakfast, go, you know, fix vehicles to get, go to lunch, fix vehicles, go to the gym, go back to chow and call it a day? Was it, you know, sort of that mundane sort of lifestyle? Uh, yeah, that deployment was definitely. Um, so I actually got tasked working for the battalion sergeant major um, as soon as we got back. And basically I was his right hand guy. Um, yeah, drove him around wherever he went and did a bunch of carpentry work for him, etc. And <clears throat> that deployment wasn't, it was good. <laughs> I came back with seven AAMs and, oh, and, uh, yeah, and, uh, battlefield promotion to specialist at the time. So it worked out for me. And then I got back to the, I remember the last day I got back to my unit and they were do, making a list of who got what awards on the deployment and I'm standing there around the guys I haven't spent the last year with, but are, we're in the same unit together. And I'm like, uh, oh, seven AMs. And they're like, you piece of shit. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was just right place at the right time. You know, yeah, POS is more, more like brown nose or kiss ass. Yeah. Where yeah. you go? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> listen, I mean, that's some people take those jobs, right. And yep. They look at him in, in a way where it doesn't benefit him and other people take those jobs and try to take advantage of them. And clearly you were the latter and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I would tend to think that most sergeant majors uh, wouldn't hand out awards that people didn't reserve. It's probably not in their nature. Correct. And this one was, he was, he was pretty tough to work for most days. Um, but the <clears throat> overall, that's where kind of the book started. And 
that was uh, that was interesting. It was never supposed to be supposed to become a book, um, and it basically during the Iraq um, deployment, it detailed a lot of just the everyday kind of like what you were talking about, the mundane, uh, trying to keep up with daily life, keeping yourself mentally just sound and honestly surviving thousands and thousands of mortar attacks. Um, And that's where I think I started writing that with no intention on ever publishing it, but uh, it eventually kind of, as I got moved on to the second deployment and so on, it, it definitely turned into that, turned into an actual book. And uh, my main, my main reasoning behind that was there's not a lot of these books. Um, There's not a lot of just the regular Joe um, on these deployments, just talking about, you know, what was going on in your head, uh, how you are, how you're dealing with that mentally. And I felt like me personally, I, like I know you've had Anthony Swafford on here. Yeah. Um, that's what I kind of compared it to was just that uh, jarhead kind of deployment where you're just you're never doing really anything combat related besides walking and doing what your job is. And yeah. it's but I see I, I think you know the idea of writing down your thoughts. And yes, you know I, I when I during my first appointment was in Iraq, um, I kept a journal that I wrote in every day, every two days, three days, whatever my schedule would really allow me to sit down and sit down and type. And, and, you know, when it was all said and done, um, it ended up being about 170 pages, single spaced, you know, not, not the way you write your college papers to squeeze out an extra page. You know, it was just like regular small font. And it was just my thoughts poured out on paper uh, over everything that I had went through experiences that had happened you know, reactions to things, emotional, you know, stuff related to back home and what I was thinking and feeling relationships, all that stuff kind of just poured out on paper. Um, and the only page I've ever shared with anybody is the final page where I kind of wrote my, uh, you want to say the things that I learned or the things that I took away from the deployment and everything else. But I always kind of wondered, you know, if, if I shared those thoughts and it was something right after I got back, people was like, you should, you know, you should try to publish it, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, I don't know. Some of that stuff seems and feels really personal. Some of that stuff seems and feels really like people who haven't been there wouldn't understand. Um, and, and I wonder when you started writing those things, did you ever think that those were thoughts that were being shared with anybody that anybody could even relate to? Yeah, definitely. Even leading up to publishing it, I was reading back through it and I'm like, I don't want anybody to know this shit. Like half of it, you know, <laughs> honestly, you know, um, because you're really, you know, you're, you're putting yourself out there on a yeah. level that, that make, if it's making you uncomfortable, like this is, <laughs> this is probably, you know, something very, very personal. Um, did you but, go back and read it before you published it? Uh, well, yes, yes, I did. So I, in Alabama, I had a uh, school teacher, an English school teacher who actually helped me edit it. And we read back through it every single day. Like we get together every night and read like two or three pages. And it was, it got to so emotional to a point that I was reliving some of the experiences that I had um, that I was like, I can't fucking do this. This is like, this isn't, I don't, I don't want people to know this, you know, people that I associate with now, I don't want them to see that kind of side of me. Um, But at the end, I was just like, I kind of closed my eyes and just sent it <laughs> to the publisher. And 
I was just like, well, whatever happens, happens now. So yeah, I, I, um, I've never went back and read mine. I've always said I was going to do it. I never went back and, and now I'm almost scared to read it. If that makes sense. I'm almost scared to, to think that, you know, there was a younger person and a younger, I got my term kid, you know, I, and it's weird as we sit here and we record this, I think, uh, I just passed my 15 year anniversary of coming back from that deployment uh, when I got off the plane and coming back from that deployment. So, you know, th- th- there's a, there's an entirely different person who had all those thoughts and feelings and emotions. And uh, I don't know that I want to anybody to know that person, if, if that makes sense. Definitely. Yeah. That's, that's basically how I felt through the whole process of, of editing and, and all of that was, this is, you know, I'm, I'm a, like you're saying, a completely different person than I was then, you know, and I'm talking about relationships that I was in then and everything else. And yeah. like, Nobody needs to know this. Um, you know, so the, the editing process definitely was like, yeah, we're going to take some of this out, but uh, the overall story of it and just letting people know that like, Hey, whenever I, whenever people are gone, like your family members or whoever this may be, and they, they're not out doing, you know, God's work, uh, then this is, this is probably what's going on in their heads. And, and this is something that maybe not only you should know, but you should probably know. So you can, if if they're having issues to help them out. Was there any sort of self-awareness when you got back that some of the things you were thinking and feeling, I'm going to say were problematic or, or, or could have led you down a road that could have, you know, changed your life dramatically. Was there any kind of, you know, thoughts and like, Hey, you know, maybe, maybe things aren't right between the years right now. Yeah, uh, definitely. Whenever I first got back and honestly, I think like, I'm just the kind of person that the, the easier my life I can make it, the, the better I am. Um, and so if I can kind of t- tunnel my vision into as little things as possible, and that's what a deployment I felt does, you have your job and you have one option of, of, uh, soap <laughs> to choose from that you're going to buy or not buy. And, uh, it just, it's very simple. And for me coming back the weekend that I got back, I, I had, I didn't sleep for like three days. I had just this needed to keep going. I just felt like I was like, Oh, I just need to stay up and, and had some issues with, with that. And then finally I had like a panic attack, I had my first panic attack ever. Um, and I remember my mom was like, Oh my gosh, I thought I was having a heart attack. <clears throat> Took me uh, to the emergency room, found out that they were like, Oh, what have you been doing the past, you know, 72 hours or whatever. And I was like, Oh, I just got back from Iraq. And they're like, Oh, We've, we've seen some people in here that have just gotten back from Iraq. They're having the same similar issues. Uh, so they gave me some medication and which was Ambien, which, <laughs> which was on the way home. I was just like, Oh geez, am I extremely drunk right now or what's going on? But uh, so, yeah, there was, there was some points coming home from that deployment where I was like, I need to go on another deployment now, like just to keep like right and feel right. And I definitely, as soon as I got back, I missed it. But I guess that, if that makes sense. Now, when do you get back month and year? When do you get back from that deployment? Uh, so we get, we got back, let's see, July, I think 13th, 2009. Okay. Yep. So does anybody in your unit know about, 
emotionally or mentally what's going on upstairs? No, not really. I have a, I had a buddy, uh, Sean, who he and I were really close, but it wasn't really like a, Hey, we're going to share our feelings close. It was more of like right. buddy, buddy. He knew something was off and I knew something was off with him too. And, you know, I didn't really weigh the stress of that particular deployment just from, a, I guess what, a, what kind of stress it had on everyone uh, because we had like six or seven suicides um, from that oh, unit. Really? Yeah. While and, you were in Iraq. Uh, once we got back. Once you got yeah. back. Okay. All right. Yep. Yep. And then uh, we've had a lot of people just end up in prison and, and just a lot of like, you're like, what? Like, cause then, once I got back from Afghanistan, there was nothing, nothing, nothing like that ever happened. And it just, it, to me, it was like, what was so different about that one compared to, you know, Afghanistan? What was the difference? And the only thing I could honestly chalk it up to was the caliber of person that was coming in at the time when I went to Iraq was we've got a completely different set of people, if that makes sense. I felt like whenever I was coming through and processing, the army was taking everybody because they needed numbers um, and felonies and, and just whatever you had on your record didn't really matter. I remember going through MEPs and guys that were like, oh, I had this many DUIs, but I was able to still get in here. And you're like, what? How is that even possible? Um, so that was the only thing I could really chalk it up to. Uh, we had one guy who, who a few years ago actually shot a guy outside of a bar in Kansas. Um, and he's in prison now. It's just fucking these crazy stories. Um, we had another guy who actually, the last time I saw him, he came to one of my shows and um, I talked to him at the bar that night and I was just like, Hey man, how you doing? And a week, he was good. We hadn't seen each other since Iraq and just kind of ex exchange stories that only we knew um, at the time. And then uh, a week later he was dead in a car wreck and it was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, why does this keep happening? <clears throat> Do you think some of that is guys who are predisposed to sort of, those things happening or was it purely the deployment had that kind of effect on people? That's hard to tell. I mean, without, you know, um, gate without probably gauging those people, you know, personally. Right. Um, I felt like there was nothing that was so bad that I, you know, ever wanted to take my own life. Uh, there was nothing ever that really ran through my head. That was that I can rem recall that was like, I saw this or this or this, or, you know, that like I'm trying to deal with something that was extremely hard. Um, so I don't know, unless, you know, it would have to be like, Hey, let's put all these guys in a room. We're just going to like analyze them for the next few months and see, you know, what, what the actual deal was, but I, I have no idea. <clears throat> so when do you get to your next deployment in Afghanistan? I know you mentioned you were just missing when you got back. How does that whole transaction take place? Um, so I was actually due to get out. I was coming up on my, uh, four into my four year term and they, I had moved units. So I got back to Fort Riley and they, I did an interpost transfer, which restarted my two years at Fort Riley. Um, and so I got to another company there and all of a sudden they're like, yeah, we're going to Afghanistan. Well, I had like three months left and, I was kind of on the fence already about 
whether or not I wanted to go get out, but I'd kind of grown attached to the guys in my shop that I worked with directly. And so I was like, I can't like, I can't in good conscience leave and knowing that they're going to Afghanistan and I'm going to go be a civilian. Like I just couldn't, I don't think I had it in me to live with myself with that. <clears throat> and so the next week signed up to, to basically go and knowing that was going to Afghanistan. And that was 2012. And we, um, we basically, uh, our shop was five guys. We had a, a warrant officer, um, a, uh, E6, E5, and then there was uh, three of us lower enlisted at the time, so E4s to and one E3, um, all deployed as as a shop, which was better because hey, there's only uh, there's a small amount of us, and so going into that deployment, we knew our mission was going to be flying all over Eastern Afghanistan, um, supporting uh, everybody on Fourth Brigade uh, from from the First Infantry, and it was all basically us going out to small cops and going out to these really small, small fobs out in the middle of nowhere that were getting attacked every single day. Like um, whenever you were, most of the guys that you interview on here, I'm like, those are the guys that we took over, you know, that were over doing in one, two, eight infantry or two sixteen infantry that were all, you know, taking the fight to the, to the Taliban or Al Qaeda whenever we were there. And we were out supporting them every single day and basically trying to keep them up to speed on going out to their OPs and take tearing their 50 cows apart. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to clean this for you because this thing isn't going to work the next time you have to use it. So I'm <clears throat> just trying to do uh, what we can with what we had. And that one was a little bit more of the, the wild West. I felt like that was not like, we were in Iraq. KBR was taking care of us. Uh, we were uh, living the good life. Uh, Barry Switzer's coming next week, and we get to meet him or something, you know. And so, this was <laughs> this was more of like, hey, everybody's gonna take a giant <laughs> bite out of this shit sandwich, and we're all gonna enjoy it. Um, and so, that was like. That to me was, I felt like, a, hey, this is a deployment. This, I'm actually deploying. Uh, and this is like, it felt like I was doing my part, I guess. And so we started out, honestly, like the first few missions that we went on were, uh, we jumped in Blackhawks. We were flown to wherever we were going to do maintenance on equipment or maintaining uh, 120 millimeter mortars or doing uh full inspections on triple seven howitzers, whatever it may be. Uh, They're flying us out to do that. And we were on these small fobs where these guys were engaging the enemy while we were there doing small arms repair <laughs> and we'll be in a building and these guys get attacked, you know, and there's like, yeah, hey, you have to stop taking apart this uh, 120 millimeter bipod, put it back together because they need it right now. And so <clears throat> we got really good at our job. Let's just say that because <laughs> there's, there's nothing that expedites a process faster than like, Hey, we're under attack outside. We need that shit now. <clears throat> so the, because the threat of danger or operational tempo was different, um, given what you had already experienced in your first deployment, were you able to look at this thing and, and 
handle it better or did you in the moment not recognize that you know uh i i guess you were being pushed to the limit to a certain extent um i had a good grasp on it as soon as i got there i was like i knew what to do um i kind of read back through my previous notes from the first deployment and i was like okay this is what i did this is the routine i had and let's just pick up where we left off basically um and so that's why i think you know you're talking about journaling and everything else. Those are good references for yourself going to the next deployment or, you know, going anywhere. And it's, it's important to have those. But as far as being sound state of mind going there, yeah, I was good. I was ready to go. Um, I feel like I kind of thrive in that, in that kind of environment um, in general. And to me, it's just, it's a better way of life some days, I guess. Did you, get a, did you get a chance to get outside the wire while you were in Afghanistan? Yeah, we were we were pretty much outside the wire. Um, most of our our missions, there was always like this OP or something outside the wire that we had to go out and we had to do services on this or that. And so I remember the first one and the first time you actually, I guess for me, it was lock and load. Um, and you're you're like oh, you know, you're actually in the fight now. That's what it felt like to me. But uh, that was just like a very like, okay, now I'm actually doing something, you know, doing something with my army career, whatever it may be. And so we climbed, we had just got to Afghanistan. It was the first week and we climbed up on this 300 foot from where we were um, up on the side of this uh, mountain. And there was an OP up there. There was the Afghan national army up with our, uh, I think one, two, eight was there. And we basically were going up there to service a 50 cal and it was horrible. Like climbing, you're already in Afghanistan and then there, uh, <clears throat> you're in full gear climbing up the side of this mountain and it was horrible, but, uh, you get up there and the, uh, these guys are living out of, uh, a Connex and, uh, the Afghan national army's over in a, in a bunker made out of sandbags and they've got a goat tied up out front and they're getting ready to kill it uh, for dinner that night. And so we serviced that. And this was right on the line going into Pakistan. Uh, there was basically a mountain range that divided Pakistan between uh, uh, Margaw where these, where these guys were at and into Pakistan. And there was one route that uh, the Taliban liked to basically travel, come into that area and, uh, they would cause were cause would cause issues in the little town of Margal that was right there, uh, and so we were up there basically trying to make sure that they were combat ready if anything ever happened, <clears throat> and and so we took apart that fifty cal and that fifty cal was in horrible condition, got it up and running, and did our job and and took off and went to the next one. And I think we did ended up in during Afghanistan we did like sixty three missions. Um, and we supported the, uh, the, uh, Polish commandos, uh, while we were there, we, we supported the, uh, our special forces guys. We had, we worked a lot with the, uh, small arms guys for the, or the weapons specialists for, for special forces. Uh, they would come, we would basically swap, how, how, how did you do this under stress and how would you do this? And do you have any extra parts? Uh, the Navy, uh, we did go out uh, to 
a small fob, which was, which was uh, manned by half of our guys, half of the Afghan National Army. Uh, they had a colonel there who we basically, he requested us to come up and do small arms training with his guys. Uh, they were getting ready to I mean, <clears throat> turn over some of our country guns to, to the Afghan National Army. Yeah, so we took them through learning how to do, you know, uh, basic, basic stuff with the 240, 249, uh, M16, and all, all, everything except for pretty much Mark 19 or 50 cal was what we were kind of turning over to these guys. And we, uh, that was, let's see, that was pretty much like the mid of the deployment. And as we're going through that, we're still, we're, I guess, going out on not only air convoys, I guess, but uh, we're going out on like road convoys. We're going between between fobs, everything else. Um, and that was probably more stressful than, you know, flying. I think a few times I was, whenever we were flying, uh, something was probably going on that we just didn't know about um, just because due to the fact that there was no reason for us to know about it. Uh, it's not like we're going to poke out the back of a uh, black Hawk and sh- fire some in, in four rounds, but uh, <clears throat> yeah, there was, there was definitely some times where we were all kind of ready to hit the road, go back home. Was there any casualties you guys sustained on the deployment? Not in our, you know, we had total, I want to say the brigade had a loss of, I think 12 or 13 guys. Um, and a, a lot of them were, of course, our, our infantry units that were out at the smaller cops and uh, the smaller fobs and everything else. Um, we did have, I think, a one suicide while we were there. Um, our unit, though, mainly, we were the only ones that were honestly going outside the wire, our shop, our five guys. And so we didn't, I mean, we didn't, our unit would have never really had any casualties unless we had, you know, in uh, mortaring mortars or anything like that, but that never really happened in Afghanistan. <clears throat> when do you, when do you leave Afghanistan? Um, so I take off in, let's see, that was February, 2013. Uh, towards the end of the deployment, everything kind of slowed down for us. Um, I started working with the Jordanian army uh, and, and they were taking over basically all of our operations as far as base security. They were, uh, splitting the guard towers with us, which was every guard tower should have had an interpreter in it because neither of us, it was just like, I guess we're going to stand here and stare at each other for the next seven, eight, 12 hours. Yeah. Um, and, uh, actually a lot of those guys that I was in those, um, guard towers with, we ended up figuring out ways to communicate, um, whether that was just, uh, it was whatever. And, <laughs> and so I keep, I've kept in touch with a few of those guys since we left, which was pretty cool. They've, you know, gone on to do great things, but uh, yeah, 2013 came home and I was uh, basically, I, I had a girlfriend throughout the whole deployment was getting ready to get married. And I, I guess I just had this fucking meltdown. I mean, whenever I got back, I wasn't re- like, I don't know if I was just not ready, but like, or what it was, or 
I just started drinking and, and it's kind of started there. Um, which, um, I think most people, if they've kind of heard my story, that's kind of what, what, what I guess I'm known for is, well, not drinking anymore. It's kind of what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it, yeah. Hey, that's a drunk guy. Uh, no. Um, so that's kind of where the drinking kind of picked up. And I think I was, I, I, and honestly through therapy and everything else, like trying to piece together, like what was going on, like what would have happened that would have kind of clicked in my, in my brain and said, Hey, let's do this instead of like getting our shit together. Um, I don't know I, if, unless it was just like, Hey, I didn't like the responsibilities that I had when I got back. Uh, so ended up getting married like a few months later, the day, the day I got back from Afghanistan, I, I proposed. And yeah, by the way, that solves everything. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, uh, just keep accumulating all the shit on top of each other. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great idea. I I haven't met a problem that marriage hasn't cured yet. Right. Right. I was, (laughs) I was just trying to be a a part of the uh, percentage of the military that's been divorced. Yeah. (laughs) Keeping up your half of the bargain. Exactly. Yeah. Literally, uh, so, the way, half. yeah, literally, literally, yeah, definitely. <clears throat> so the we get married nine months later, and uh, I'm fucking, I'm just eighteen pack a night, like no big deal. Like I'm building up my tolerance, and and uh, that's that's my main focus. That's all I care about. Is like, hey, when can I get drunk next? That's uh, Are, all I was. Were you thinking. off active duty at this point? Or you still were on? I was still on active duty. Yep. I so was working did, on. Did any, I'm sorry. Did anybody on your unit notice that you had started drinking heavily? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they weren't going to say anything. I mean, it was more of uh, I kept getting uh, written up and uh, getting counseled for being late or whatever it may be. Um, I had one NCO that was really hard charged on getting me kicked out. And <clears throat> I was just kind of like, Looking back now, I'm like, I don't blame him at all, um, just because uh, they they had sent me to, to safe up, and I was still drinking. Whenever I was at safe up, I was just telling them, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm not, you know, not drinking at all, <clears throat> which 90% of the guys that are in there are doing the same thing. It's just kind of, we have to go through this hurdle uh, to get back to the unit and not have this thing going on, but uh yeah, I was still drinking, missing a lot, missing PT formation, like pretty much every day um, and just becoming a real piece of shit. And <clears throat> so the, then uh, whenever the divorce happens, I whenever that's kind of whenever it gets super bad <clears throat> and start drinking really heavily. Then there's a few times where I'm like, I'm surprised I woke up this morning and the, effects that I was having on me is I'm going from running. I mean, this is nothing to brag about, but <clears throat> like high thirteens, like 14 minute, two mile to now I'm running. I can barely make it 17 minutes. Like it's just, it's taking everything in my body to go out and run this PT test. And that's how I, 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 guess I noticed that there was something wrong. Like there was the difference in my body. Things were starting to change. And I guarantee that if I had gone to a doctor then that they would have already told me that I have early stages of like, I'm damaging my liver. Like, because that's what they told me whenever I wound up in rehab. 
<clears throat> and so ultimately the divorce happened. Um, I get off active duty uh, two years later in 2015. By, by choice, or is it one of those things where they kind of said to you, either you can walk away or we're going to put you out kind of deal? It was actually, I'd been a specialist for too long, and they're like, hey, you got to get the fuck out because you're not, you're not moving forward. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's how it was sold to me. <clears throat> but it was probably a, a uh, accu- accumulation of those things. Like, right. yeah, just get out. You're, the army will be better if you get out. So <clears throat> the so that takes me to hey I'm a civilian now and uh, nobody has any power over me and so I can do whatever I want and I just got this nice bonus because I agreed to join the National Guard and so let's go blow that on Royals World Series tickets and um, and uh, booze. Not a terrible decision on the Royals World Series tickets. I mean, especially yeah. for that franchise, you might not never see it again in your lifetime. So, oh, I know. Yeah, it was it was it was a good game. That what I remember of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, just drinking. I mean, like I like I said, it was like eighteen pack a night, um, or if I didn't have that, it was in just taking like risks. That what the fuck are you doing, man? Like I wish somebody would have just like grabbed me and fucking slapped the shit out of me and said, Hey man, get your shit together. And I, you know, and like what you're kind of talking about earlier is, is that with the first deployment is, are those guys with preconceived, you know, pre issues that were already before the military, or is that actually from the deployment? And I don't know. That's, it's trying to, trying to figure that out still i think um on on some days i'm like yeah it was like i had this upbringing that was really kind of shitty in a shitty situation most of the most of the time and then again i'm like but i never drank before like that so i didn't i didn't really know but um i definitely know it was escalated because i mean i think as you know coming from active duty it's definitely the military is an enabler for um drinking especially i guess if you live in the barracks and and all that that's kind of what the what happens on the weekends <clears throat> for the record i mean I, I don't say this negatively it's just the, the military is a neighbor of all vices right yes because yep. there's time there's people who do the same vices you do uh and and it is a way to unwind from a very regimented lifestyle and whether that vice is drinking whether it is, you know, some form of drugs or whatever. And again, those drugs aren't necessarily ones that, that, that are illegal, but, you know, gambling, whatever it may be. I mean, if you live such a regimented lifestyle, you need some way to do something that's counter to that to sort of balance out life. So uh, I think, and as you said, there's a lot of people in the military, so they're all sort of looking for an outlet. And it's easy to latch on to somebody else who has the same outlet as you do. Correct. Yeah, that was definitely the. That's definitely true. Is we're all it's just a melting pot of different people that are are uh, all have you know come come from some history of. Hey, I was trying to get out of a situation, or it's just, it's just you know you do have the good guys that are like, hey, I came here for a reason, and I'm not going to be a part of that. So, <clears throat> but you have us assholes that kind of ruin it for everybody else. <laughs> so, how does the drinking eventually stop? Um, so 
actually the whole reason I moved to here to Omaha was I had a, my warrant officer that from actually both deployments, we went on both deployments together. Uh, he moved here and he has, he has family here. And he said, Hey man, you should move here to Omaha until you figure out what you want to do uh, with your life. And I was like, okay. So I moved up here with hopes of, Hey, I'm going to kickstart a, a music career. Um, and, started here in Omaha and kind of see where it goes from there. I've never really lived in a city besides Kansas city. Um, and it was pretty short lived. Uh, but yeah, so that's what, what ultimately brought me here to Omaha. And then I lived with him for probably six months and he was the one that started saying, Hey dude, you need to pump the brakes on the drinking because, uh, I don't really want to walk down to the basement one day and find you dead. Like, I remember that's, I think he told me that one time, if I remember right. And eventually he, I didn't take his, what he was saying um, and use it in a positive way. I took it and, and use it in a negative way. And I moved out and was like, Hey, I'm going to get my own place. And if you don't want to watch me drink, I'll just drink something. <laughs> if you're not. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. It's and a solution, not a wise one, but it's still a solution. Right. Um, and so I'm watching and it was funny because as I'm getting deeper into this, into this alcoholism, I'm looking at, I'm watching like the, those shows, um, uh, what are they, where they, um, it, those addiction shows where they try to turn people intervention, that one. Yeah. And I'm really, really tied to these ones that are military background guys. Um, uh, and they're trying to turn their lives around and all of this. But at the same time, I'm not using them in a positive way. I'm using them as a way of enabling, saying, oh, that, that guy's doing it. I can do it, too. Like, I can still drink, whatever it may be. And just making some fucking horrible decisions that I, you know, financially um, and, and all these other. example. I bought two dogs one time that I probably shouldn't have bought <laughs> because I lived in an apartment and I didn't understand they had to pay like a pet deposit. Um, and I have these two Burmese mountain dogs that are fucking ginormous in this 800 square foot apartment. And I was, yeah, it was a bad idea. (laughs) You still have the dogs? No, I, I sold them. Um, I was like, yeah, this was probably a bad idea. So, uh, they, they live in the country outside of Omaha now where they can, where they can the, roam and be, 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 be dogs, basically fucking polar bears. Uh, <laughs> um, so getting to the point where it was like, Hey, this is my, my uh, D day ultimately was I had, we had gone to a concert the night before uh, Eric and I, and we'd gone back to Eric's my, the warrant officer and he had his, one of his family members was in town and we'd gone back to his house after the show was over and proceeded to drink into the wee hours of the morning. I did and woke up at probably like six o'clock in the morning, still drunk, <clears throat> drove across town to my house and got there and started um, drinking again. I mean, until I ran out of beer, I had probably like six, six beers left in the fridge and then once I was gone, it was like probably 10 o'clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock. And the liquor stores didn't open 
or they wouldn't start selling liquor until 11 on Sundays. <clears throat> and so I called an Uber. They took me to uh, the gas station down from my house. And that's kind of all I remember after that was getting the beer, coming back to my apartment, drinking like two of them, and then having kind of a meltdown. You know, I, I know it happened just from uh, people that I've talked to now uh, about what had happened. And I talked to Eric. I called him and I said, man, you know, I'm really not in a good place. And he already knew. He was just like, I guess, waiting kind of for that. Like I needed to realize it. He knew. Everybody around me knew. And so he was just like, I'm coming over like right now. And so he came over and got me and took me to the VA and took me to the emergency room there where they like were like, I can't, can't believe you're alive. Your fucking blood alcohol is like three something. Yeah, I can't remember what it was. It was extremely high. Um, and they they gave me a uh, an IV. And I remember my moment was my grandpa was actually, he was in town helping my sister move. And they, she lives like just probably 30 minutes from me and she was moving into a different house and Eric had called them. And all of a sudden I'm in this like exam room and my grandpa walks in and like, my grandpa was pretty much like my dad growing up. Like he was, he was that role model. My dad was like not around most of my childhood and my grandpa was that guy. And he walked in and he, I just remember him saying, you need to get your shit together. And he'd never cussed in front of me he'd never said anything like that and I knew he was serious <clears throat> and for me that was like all right yep okay and so they took me I stayed overnight and the next morning the uh, doctor came in and he's like hey uh so you got we we took you like took your blood did did some ransom tests and did some uh checks on your liver and all these different tests to make sure that you hadn't done any like permanent damage to yourself, but you've got some damage done to your liver. Um, and he spit out some numbers that I had no idea what he was saying, but, um, he's like, we've got, you've got two options. He's like, we can send you home. You can go keep doing what you're doing right now. And we'll see you in a month or, or, um, you can go to rehab for the next 28 days and you can, hopefully come out on the other end without this part of your life still going on. And I was like, yeah, let's go to rehab. Like now, <laughs> if we can go today, let's do that. And <clears throat> you surprised that you were able to make that decision so easily. I mean, most, as you said, most people sort of fight it a little bit, right? Like you don't realize you're an alcoholic. So um, were you surprised that you were able to kind of come to that, that come to Jesus moment? And not even meaning this as a joke, I was still a little drunk um, whenever I made that decision. And so it helped quite a bit, um, in all honesty, because I know the first day that I kind of woke up and was like, I could, I knew I was sobering up like completely, uh, which was probably, it was two days later. I kind of knew the routine as far as like what my body goes through whenever I'm detoxing. <laughs> yeah. And, um, that kind of pins and needles feeling all throughout my body anyway, that, that ultimately was like that first day I was like, Oh fuck, what did I do? Like I had that feeling like, and I kind of just put my head down and kept to myself and was just like, I'm just going to do this. 
Um, it was so crazy. And, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not one for, um, really, I'm not really spiritual, all that stuff, but the, the guy I roomed with initially right out of the gate in rehab was from my grandparents' hometown, which is 96 people. And so the likelihood of that ever happening was like, what, what is this? Um, so went through rehab and I mean, I'm in rehab with all veterans. Everybody's a veteran in there. Um, all different wars, Vietnam, um, desert storm, all it's, it was just a huge melting pot, air force, Navy, whatever it may be. And the, just going through that and seeing the guys that had real issues, um, really, really bad issues, um, that were in their, you know, fifties or I guess 60s, seventies, uh, with, with Vietnam and all of that. I was like, I don't have any fucking issues. Like I have nothing to fucking complain about. Like, <clears throat> and I think for me, that was kind of the huge eye opener was I was put on, I was put here in this situation, not because I'm trying to get better myself, but I'm, I need to help other people um, rather than just myself. And throughout that, and I made a lot of like long lasting friends still that I talk to pretty regularly that I went through rehab with. And that's honestly like what you talked about in the opener was guitars for veterans was how I came in, in contact with that guitars for veterans was just really coming off the ground then. And now they're, they're huge, but, uh, it, <clears throat> they had asked for volunteers or anybody that had musical experience, uh, that would want to sign up and, and give guitar lessons to veterans who are struggling with PTSD. And I said, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like I would, I would love to do that. I kind of became a yes man there for a while. If that, if you've seen that movie, um, and so going through that started just helping out volunteering when I could, uh, played some pretty, pretty big shows and just getting out and meeting these guys, um, that were, they're struggling with PTSD and just, I did a, some public speaking, just sharing my alcohol story, um, and coming back, going through rehab and all of that and just meeting veterans from, I mean, I've had met guys from world war two that you know dealt with alcohol problems at one point in their lives and it's just humbling uh, meeting those guys you know world war ii vietnam because you're like that's that's who i grew up like respecting i guess uh from uh, <clears throat> the movies i saw and and the experiences that i had with other knowing veterans from my hometown where i grew up was these were the guys that, you know, like that were plowing the way at some point for us to live the life that we are today. And my dad definitely helped with that quite a bit was just understanding the the importance of respecting those guys and showing respect to guys in the military. <clears throat> you mentioned that when you, you moved to Omaha, that you wanted to do that to start a music career. So give me the background in music and, and, Amidst all the, you know, drinkings and rehabs and everything else, I guess it was a start and stop kind of deal for you. But how does the proclivity for wanting to start a music career actually turn into one for you? Yeah, it was, uh, I've been playing guitar since I was probably 13. I'd been in metal bands uh, whenever I was a kid. 
And uh, it was, which was so random because where I grew up in, in Northwest Missouri, uh, near Kansas City, it was country. I mean, Garth Brooks, George Strait, that was it. Um, that's what she listened to. If you didn't, you were wrong. And uh, <laughs> so whenever I started listening to Mudbane and, and Nine Inch Nails and all this crazy shit, my family was like, what? I remember the first time I let my grandpa listen to Korn, uh, his, the Life is Peachy album. Uh, the first, that, ooh, whatever he does in the beginning, my grandpa was like, get that shit out of my house. And yeah. I was like, all right. <laughs> uh, so I'd been in metal bands uh, growing up and hard rock bands. And then uh, whenever I was in on active duty, I, I mean, I always played guitar. I always wrote songs here and there. And you the guy in the barracks always had a guitar and every time everybody was sitting around, you were just strumming away playing music. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. <laughs> one of those. Yeah. <clears throat> and they, uh, we got them in the officer court too, by the way, they bring their guitar everywhere just to be annoying. Yeah. And yeah. everybody usually was, was like, shut the fuck up. Like from down the hall. And you're like, God damn it. You see the guy come with, Oh, he's back with the guitar. We're going to listen to him play. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so the, the, uh, I was, was playing started like before I got off active duty, I was in a band called alone after all. And if you ever want to listen to we're on YouTube, but uh, that was a rock band. And that was more comparable to like breaking Benjamin kind of sound. And we had some good stuff and we were short lived. We had one EP that came out and we played one show together and, but it was awesome. And uh, then after that, I was like, you know, it's a lot easier to go into country um i knew country i'd always played country growing up and it's easier to do as a one-man show and so <clears throat> i started going to this open mic in in manhattan kansas uh called rc mcgraws and some big names had played on that stage like static x wayne static had played there like one of his last shows before he died um and a lot of big name country bands um Hell yeah, plays there. It was just like, oh, this is fucking awesome. I'm playing at this place where all these guys that I've listened to growing up played, which is kind of a cool feeling the first time you do it. <clears throat> um, and so we started going to these open mics, and then I, I heard about uh, NSAI, which is the Nashville Songwriters Association Incorporated. And ultimately, they have chapters all of the United States. You go in and present a song that you've written to a group of people, and they say yay or nay, um, whether they like it or they don't like it, what you should do better. And I took this song, Love You a Little Longer, that I wrote, played it there. And they were like, hey, that's pretty good. You, you know, it was not, it's never like, oh, shit, you're the next uh, whatever, whoever's popular right now. But uh, they were like, yeah, you could do this better, do this better. It gave me enough confidence that I kept going um, as a, as a uh, solo artist. <clears throat> and uh, started booking shows kind of left and right. And then that's kind of like after, like once I got through the military, moved to, or got off active duty, moved to uh, up here to Omaha and had plans of, of kind of igniting that, that music career. But they, I still played shows, but man, it was fucking rough. Uh, it was playing, uh, half hour and then stopping for an hour and bars don't like to pay for guys that are just drinking the whole time. <clears throat> <laughs> um, they're like, yeah, so you're, 
your uh, $150 an hour just got cut down to $10 an hour because of how much you drank. So <clears throat> the, as that, the music kind of took a back seat, but then as I went through rehab and all that, uh, came out the other end and I was like, Hey, I'm going to fucking just beat the shit out of this and really, really do some good stuff. Um, put out the second EP, um, a couple of years later after uh, rehab, which was kind of a huge deal for me personally. I grew up in Missouri and one of my favorite bands was story of the year. And I don't know if you've ever listened to them or not, but they, they had that song until the day I die. Um, if you heard it, you would know who it is. Um, and they were huge in 2003, whenever I was graduating from high school and I had just randomly wrote, uh, the lead singer on, on Instagram and was like, Hey, I'd like to record at your studio sometime. And sure enough, he replied back and I was like, Holy shit, this is fucking awesome. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I'd like, I'd love to record. And I'm like, is this really happening right now? <laughs> right now? Um, <clears throat> and so I had went down to St. Louis and, and took like probably six separate trips to go down and record a, a five song EP um, with Dan Marsala of story of the year. And he sings on one of my songs, which is, which was, it was an uncomfortable day asking him if he would like, <laughs> like want to uh, sing on it. Cause he's a huge guy. I mean, they've got fucking, gold records and, and all this. And I'm like, Hey man, would you want to like do some vocals on this one song? And he's like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And I'm like, okay, then that wasn't as bad as I thought. So, <laughs> um, That's so learned, hey, never n- n- shoot your shot, right? Sliding into the DM if you have to. It, yeah. It can't hurt. Don't and, be creepy about it. People, you know, you can slide into DMS without being creepy. So right. Lesson learned there. <laughs> I, I, I think like the, uh, the, best advice I could give is don't be too detailed about, about why you're, why you're writing. I think that's why some people didn't respond because uh, <clears throat> yeah, it can get creepy, but he, that was awesome recording with him. Um, and then uh, I had actually reached out to Richard Patrick of the band filter. I don't know if you remember them or not. Mm-hmm. Um, he take my they, picture filter, take my picture. Hey man, nice shot. Those guys. Yeah. So I'd written him when I was, so Richard's been like 15 years sober and whenever I was trying to get sober, I wrote him and I said, Hey man, like I still have the message too. It's fucking crazy. But telling him I'm trying to get my life together. What advice do you have for me? Like I'm fucking like at rock bottom. Took him two years to respond, but he finally did. <clears throat> and I remember the day that I was driving I was driving to a show and this is after I'd gotten sober. Um, I was driving to a show in Bedford, Iowa, and I was getting into no man's land. So I was losing service. And all of a sudden I see like on Instagram, you have a message from filter Richard Patrick. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I fucking automatically. I'm like, Oh shit. Pull it, pull the car over to the side of the road, get out. And I'm literally like, Oh, uh, like fucking <laughs> Chris Farley on fucking, uh, <clears throat> black sheep. Right. And, uh, and so he's like, Hey man, like, sorry, it took so long to respond, but, uh, just wanted to say, hope everything's okay. And that you kind of, hopefully you found your way. And I was like, Richard, uh, yeah. I'm like, I've been sober for a year now and everything's great. Um, 
And so that started, this kickstarted this friendship that I was like, what the fuck is happening once again? Um, and basically the next day, you know, I was just kind of like, man, we should just talk on the phone. Cause I'm tired of texting and you sending me pictures of your thousands of fucking super expensive guitars. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so like, I can't afford. Yeah. And so we get on the horn and I'm just like fangirling, man. It's just like, this is a guy, you know, like take a picture. Like you said, it's like <clears throat> that song that I listened to whenever I was a kid in the nineties. And, and uh, then just all their albums. I listened to it the whole year I was in Iraq, whenever they came out with soldiers of misfortune mm-hmm. and it was just a huge fan. And we just, we have this friendship now that it's like we FaceTime and, I throw music ideas to him and I'm like, what do you think of this? And he's just like, no, it's not, no, it's not going to work or it is going to (laughs) work, whatever it may be. Um, When does the book come out in all this? The book comes out, the book starting to take the book serious comes out in 2019, probably 18, 19. We are sober at this point in time. Yes. Yep. And <clears throat> I had the the lady from Alabama who had come to actually come up to visit. That was Eric's sister. So my my warrant officer on the deployment, it was his sister. And she came up and she was like, hey, do you mind if I read your journals? And I was like, I guess not. Go ahead. And she read the Afghanistan one. And she was just kind of like, you need to turn this into a book because there's people that need to hear this stuff. And. I had continued to write after I'd gotten sober. So that was kind of like my, one of my outlets. Um, and so a lot of that after story is kind of in there. And she was like, I think people that just in general, like are alcoholics right now need to read this fucking book. <clears throat> and I was like, all right, I don't know how to do that. I mean, honestly, I'm just a, just a dumb country guy from uh, <clears throat> Hopkins, Missouri. And uh, she's like, well, well, we'll sit down. We'll go through this every day. So it took a year of just editing and getting it ready, typing everything up. And by the time we were kind of finished, I was, we were both kind of like, now what? Because she's never published a book. I've never published a book. And so I was like, well, this has got to be as simple as Googling how to publish a book <clears throat> and get on there looking for publishers and found one in Pennsylvania in Pittsburgh and just pitched my idea to them, sent them a, uh, a draft of the book itself. And they were like, yeah, we want to, we want to work with you today. So um, they basically had to go through the process of their editors, editing it, um, getting it, everything prepared for when it would be published, which that took another year. Um, so we're getting into, 2020 at that point and finally had kind of gotten a a projected date of November last year when it would actually hit at Amazon and all of that and got the copy. And like what I had talked about earlier, there was a point where I was kind of on the fence about whether I was going to do this or not. And eventually I was just like, they had sent me the final draft of what they would, would want to publish and I got it back and I just was like, I didn't even read it. I was just like, I got to send this or I'm going to back out. <clears throat> um, and so they took it and 
I just remember getting the 50 copies of the book that, that I got um, initially out of the gate was just like, Holy shit. <laughs> Here it is. Um, and I just didn't know. I was like, I still haven't read it. Um, I still haven't set, you know, cause all the editing and you're just like, it's just like writing a song. Like whenever you go into the studio, you have to record those parts hundreds of times. And by the time, by the time you're done recording, you're like, I never want to fucking hear the song again. (laughs) That's, that's seriously how you feel. And so with the book as well, um, that's how I felt. I was like, I never want to read this book again and, um, or even see it. I don't want to relive any of this. And people have been very receptive of it. And it's been the people that I didn't think would be receptive of it. Which is um, uh, people from my hometown who are, you know, just regular Joes that, you know, just read it and they were like, I didn't even know you could write, you know, and this is very well written. And, you know, this is makes me understand like my brother who's, who's overseas and, and helps me understand kind of what he's going through and how to talk to him whenever we talk and, and to let him talk and not so much share all this stuff that's going on in our lives because the world kind of stopped turning for them over, you know, like back here, but it's still going for us. And, and I'm like, well, that's, I'm glad that that's what you got out of it. It's kind of a a big deal. So it was, there was a lot And my family, I think saw a side of me that they didn't know about ultimately just kind of that, like you're on a deployment and it would be easier if you were just kind of left alone so you could focus on what you're doing. Um, and not have to worry about coming back to the barracks and am I going to make the time crunch for who's got a FaceTime or, or zoom or whatever it is, I guess it was. And they saw that and they were like, I wish you would have just said it at, and I'm like, I didn't know how to say that without hurting the feelings. So, and I'm like, you're not thick skin, like the guys I'm over here with. Uh, so I wasn't about to do that. <clears throat> but it was, it was good for me. And I, I would push any veteran that's been overseas, you know, and even you, if not, maybe you don't publish it, but I think sometimes it's always, it made me feel better just having the Eric's sister read it. It was just like somebody else read it and kind of could help me navigate through maybe what I was thinking. You say it. And I think, and I cringe thinking about let somebody else read it. I really did. Like I genuinely, there's a knot in my stomach, even think I, I would probably want to go back and read it at some point, you know, this may hopefully be, be the catalyst for it, but yep. I, I, again, I, I don't, man, I don't even know what I wrote in that thing anymore. It's been so long. So I'm, I'm afraid of what anybody might think. I mean, it, it's like yours. I'm sure it's filled with a lot of just raw emotion. You know, there's just a lot of things that uh, when the catharsis you get from putting your, your thoughts on paper, um, without anybody to review them, edit them, judge them, um, you know, quantify them. Uh, sometimes they lose a little bit of context when you read them in a different environment. Right. And I, I think that's part of it. Um, and, and if I didn't say it before, I'll say now, I mean, there's a ton of credit and a ton of courage to you for going forward with that. Because again, as somebody who sits here in, in a similar spot, I just, I don't know if I have the guts for that right now. Uh, I would probably read it first before I did it, but I think, you know, in, in all honesty, uh, for you to put those thoughts out there for the world to read and the world to judge and the world to take out of context um, takes a certain amount of personal courage that I'm not sure everybody has. So 
I tip my cap to you for doing that. And I certainly think that it's not as easy, you know, as people think everybody thinks anybody who writes a book does it to make money. Well, I, I guess to a certain extent you write a book because there is a monetary possibility of gain to it. But in the same respect, I think every book starts with a simple idea of wanting to communicate something about someone or some experience or whatever. And it, it spitballs and takes on a life of its own after that. But the genuine, you know, uh, birth of a book is in an idea and a thought, I think, right? It is. And I think that's, <clears throat> I think it's, it's important. And even if you're going to share those stories and everything else, it's like, if it's, if it's going to happen one day, it's going to click and you're going to be like, yeah, I'll, I'm going to go crack that because I want to read about that time that I got a massage from a Korean masseuse over in Afghanistan <laughs> because I know that fucking story is funny and I want to laugh about it, you know? Yeah, and so Those are the kind of stories I'm afraid of. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> those, are the, those are the stories I'm not sure I think anybody, now that I'm, I have a, a wife and kids, and I, I'm not sure I want that out in the public eye. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's also the ones where it's just, you know, your buddies and you had these inside jokes and you're going to remember them. And that's just like, oh yeah, I remember, you know, this guy or this guy. And you're like, I totally forgot about that. <laughs> it's, Let me ask I, you. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to ask you, you know, uh, I imagine both these experiences, um, having a book you wrote released and having a song you wrote released, it may be similar in some ways. I think you talked about it a moment before, but is there any more sense of pride in one over the other? Can you compare the two? I think it's more of, I'm more tied to music than I am to writing a book. Um, I didn't care. Like to me, like it wasn't like, Oh my God, the book came out. And I was, I was just kind of like, all right. Like it, it was cool. Like I, like I kind of said, I was like, Oh, I can't believe this happened. But like with a new song that comes out, I was more like, I'm more of like, what's everybody going to think? How am I feeling? It's more important to me. Um, but a book, it was just kind of like, I'll probably never do this again, but um, here we are. And like, like you're talking about like monetary gain and, you know, just making money off of it. It's not going to fucking happen. Like, I mean, unless you're like Jack Carr and I'm not, you know, so it's just, I'm not, uh, I'm not writing made for Amazon movies. Um, it's, it, it is very much the mundane life of the military soldier who's overseas working as a, a small arms repairer. Um, but I think that to me, the thing, the catalyst for why is there's a giant number of those guys that are in the army that are probably, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of times that, like the things that fueled me to continue write, writing that book was guys that I had spent time in the military with writing me and saying, what the fuck do you have to write about? And me saying, this is why I'm writing this. I'm going to keep going. And it's just, it's there. I mean, it's just, it's what that guy experienced. It's what that guy experienced, whether or not we had different, you know, different missions while we were out in Afghanistan or Iraq we were still thinking the same shit every single day um, and just sharing that. And it's funny. Like to me, it's, it's like the vet TV. It's just like, that's the shit everybody's thinking about, but nobody's actually right. telling civilians that we're right. thinking about it. <laughs> uh, 
better feeling? I think I know the answer. Having somebody come up to you and recognize your music or somebody come up to you and saying, hey, I read your book. That's that part's probably tough, but usually, I mean, the music thing is, is that's more of like what I'm trying to do. Um, trying to be a musician and that, that would be more important to me. And I, I've had the, I've had the, you know, opportunity to play with a lot of like bigger name acts and people that I would consider, um, like coming up and playing a show with Mark Chestnut, who was a huge country singer, like nineties, like big name nineties country singer. Um, he was actually in Iraq and played a show while we were there. <clears throat> and the, these bigger name acts, I guess, that I play with, that's, that's just, to me, that's more exhilarating than, you know, I guess somebody coming up and saying, Hey, I read your book. It's just like, cool. You know, I'm, I'm glad you did. Hopefully you got something out of it. Um, but I'm sure on some level it's, it's important to me. I just probably haven't found it yet, but. If you had to play cover songs the rest of your music career, would you rather cover country music or rock and roll? I'd, I'd rather cover rock and roll. There's way more energy. It's, it's more fun to sing. It's more fun to get up on stage and scream than it is to... Yeah, I mean, it is what it is. But, See, now, uh, now you're starting to speak my language as a kid from New York because uh, you mentioned all those country artists before and I'm like, I think I know one of those dudes you talked about. Garth Brooks, yeah. I definitely know. I'm not sure about the other guy you mentioned. Um, so yeah, Jordan, country music yeah. is not my genre uh, by any stretch of the imagination. I, I hope that doesn't uh, offend you. No. Uh, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, if, if you sat there and played 80s music all night long, I'd, I'd be in, brother. I'm like, oh, right. hey, I play White Snake at shows. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. See, now you got me in. You See, me in. Uh, and, and I'm a huge fan of Steel Panther, so. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you miss doing the, the metal stuff that you did before? Dude, every time I turn on uh, Architects or I turn on the the new Gojira album. I'm like, God damn it, I gotta fucking do this again. I, I just Yeah. That's the stuff that gets me going. That's like if I'm literally if I'm about ready to play a show, I'm in the back with my headphones in, listening to Foo Fighters or something along those lines. It's just like in your face, rock and roll. And like that I, I don't know. I just couldn't go in the back and listen to like Luke Bryan and get pumped up. I just couldn't do it. I I hear you. Uh, <laughs> I have to say this much, and people who know the podcast well know our executive producer Matt. And I know he, he's listening to this, and uh, he would probably wonder if you could play some Kuga or play some Sega. Sega. Play some Sega. We were just funny story. We were we were out one. I forget we we were on active duty. This is when Matt and I were on active duty together, and we were out one night, and I forget who we were out. We were having a bunch of beers with our buddy, and and he was. I think he was from Boston originally. And we were listening. He wanted to hear some Bob C. He's like, play some Sega. And so, you know, Matt and I, every time we start talking about music, we just yell at each other to play some Sega and play some Kuga. <laughs> so I guess in John Cougar Mellencamp. But uh, anyway, uh, that was just a little, little love for Matt, uh, who doesn't get enough credit for all the work we do here. I've, I've actually, uh, what was the, uh, what was Bob Seger's huge hit song? Starts out with a piano opening. Yes, um, Nope. Or night moves or oh shit. Um uh, I'll think of I'll think of it as soon as we he recorded it at Muscle Shoals. 
Um, Matt is going to be so mad that I don't have the answer to this because he knows it and he can't chime in. Yeah. Um, what else is it? Bob Seger, uh, uh, that slow love song. Is that the one you're talking about? Um, hold on. I got it right here. Uh, but I, uh, actually, um, fuck, maybe I'm going to look it up with you. Yep. I know night moves and I know, uh, uh, against the wind. Uh, what else? Main street. Turn the page. Uh, I don't know. I'm at, I'm at options here at this point. I can't remember either. I can't remember which one. Anyway, that that guitar or that piano that he opens the I've played on that piano before that he opened up the that song with, really? and uh, that was like holy shit, Bob Seger played this. Um, and that's at Muscle Shoals Music Studio in. Alabama, if you ever get a chance to go there, it's it's pretty fucking sweet. Um, so what do you uh, look for for your music career next? Well, I just had a baby, so that's kind of slowed things down a little bit. <laughs> um, damn, but I've got shows coming up. Usually I'm booked up. I usually play probably 50 to 60 shows a year. Um, wow. Yep. And so there, this, of course, the past two years have been super slow with COVID and um, all of that. So I've been doing more virtual, which Facebook, they, um, they started really basically anybody that goes on Facebook and starts like live videos and plays music, even my own music. um, They start like they ban you for like 90 days. If you like play any music, that's not, you don't have proof that it's like original. Yes, correct. And so I'm starting to get bands from like two years ago. Uh, whenever I went live and played like a Garth Brooks song, mm-hmm. and whenever I was first starting out or well, starting to do online stuff. And I'm like, what the fuck? So it was hard to actually get, keep going, playing shows and all that. But yeah, I've got shows coming up. Um, I've got the one in Kansas and some, some, some cooler shows. I've gotten to play <clears throat> with some, uh, cool people the past couple of years and just meeting the people that I meet through music is, is pretty awesome. Uh, but yeah, that right now I'm going to continue. I'm starting, I'm, I'm still writing like my next like EP or album, whatever I put out. And so it, it's more uh, beneficial for somebody like myself to put out a single rather than a whole EP uh, for the simple fact that it costs a lot to record in, in general. Um, and a lot of people are actually recording more on their own at home, but I just don't have that kind of setup. And, but, uh, for me to go in and record one song just for the simple fact of the time that it takes for one and the amount of money that it takes, uh, because of the time that it's consumed and it's just not worth it doing five or six songs at a time, because it would take me five years to get that out. And by the time that hits, that music that I'm playing is probably passed by uh, because honestly, music is like day to day anymore. And it's such a young, young guys kind of game anymore, anymore with me and guys my age are more of like a songwriter for those younger guys. And so you're not going to do that. Would no you want to do more song, just songwriting alone or you want to play and sing? I would always play and sing. But, uh, you know, if somebody, 
I, I would probably, I would have to relocate to Nashville to really get into the, the pipeline and, and, and really get to know, you know, get into the songwriter uh, pool with all of that. I have some friends that are, you know, that are living there and kind of grinding it out uh, with, with other songwriters. And it's just, it's a fucking cutthroat business. Like if you don't, if either you have it or you don't have it and you're not, they're not going to give you the time to get your shit together. Like ultimately. So so now you just stick to playing lullabies at night, right? Yep. <laughs> Randomly pulling uh, one of my guitars off the off the wall and being like, "Hey, uh, I know you're seven months old, but have you ever heard this song? Uh, this is Chop Suey by uh, System of a Down." <laughs> Whatever gets them to go to sleep at that stage. Whatever right. knocks them out doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can play be playing satanic cult music. If they pass out, it's a win. Oh yeah. <clears throat> Take it, take it from a father of twins. So yeah, I remember those days. Oh, you're um, super, super busy. <clears throat> so brand ambassador for guitars for veterans. Uh, just a little more about you know what you're doing with them right now. Um, so we've got, actually got recently we did a, during COVID we did an online deal for um, with Ford and uh, some other charities that were actually donating more money to this. Um, Luke Combs, who is a big country singer right now, is actually involved in it as well. And we did a live show, which was, it featured like Sully Erna of Godsmack um, and some other bigger name people that um, are in, in the music genre at the moment. And we did that show, which garnered a shitload of money. Let's just say that it's, um, I think every they were able to like get guitars in the hands of like, I don't know the number. I'm going to say 20,000 people, something like that, that were like, they're set for a long, long fucking time. <clears throat> um, but it's getting more of a national, um, uh, national attention now, um, now that Luke Combs kind of uh, took it and, and he's an ambassador for it as well. And uh, so with that, we've got shows coming up, uh, here in the local area, I'll go out and, and volunteer time and play those just to basically continue to gain attention for, for the, uh, for the, the cause. So <clears throat> it's kind of, uh, it's, they're kind of here and there. I, I have, I'll get a, a text the night before, Hey, can you play this tomorrow? And I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. Um, always ready. So, um, and everybody that I work with and that is a veteran. So all the the staff and everybody that's just one of the requirements is you have to be a veteran in order to even be on the staff. So we all kind of have the same common language and, and it's at that point, it's, it's fun to go hang out, play guitar. So where can people get your music? Uh, anywhere, Pandora, Amazon, uh, iTunes, Spotify, uh, really anywhere that, that there's music. You can go to YouTube. I have music videos uh, for a couple of my songs on YouTube and uh, it's uh, yep. It's all over the place. <clears throat> well, that's where you get the music, the book time cap uh, you can get on Amazon anywhere else you buy books as well. And yep. don't forget to check out again, guitars for veterans continued luck and success uh, in the, in the music field. Uh, continue your, your guard career. Again, we just mentioned you uh, just recently were promoted to staff sergeant in the guard. So congratulations and uh, continued success there as well. And obviously family life, man, you know, uh, shoots at the top of the list of priorities, but best of uh, best of luck, best of health and everything 
with the baby and the family going forward, man. So we certainly appreciate you sharing your story and, and all the time and honesty and candor that you've given us. And uh, again, I know people can relate to a lot of what you're talking about and, and more of those things you mentioned in the book that a lot of people can relate to. So uh, keep doing that, that yeoman's work as far as educating people on PTS and uh, mental health for, uh, for veterans and, and continue just to be a, a, a good steward of the, of the military community, brother. Cause I think that's what you're, you're doing right now. And it's, and it's working well for you. For sure. Thank you. Nick Rucker. Thanks for being part of the hazard ground. You've been listening to kill cliffs hazard ground podcast hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazard And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.